developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. In 1966, a well-known engineer released a book with information that could impact everyone on Earth. But before anyone could read it, it was classified by the CIA. We only learned of its existence a few years ago because of a Freedom of Information request. The CIA only released 57 pages of the original 284-page manuscript. And those pages have been, in the CIA's own words, sanitized. Why does the CIA think this book is so dangerous that they had to hide it from the public for 60 years and continue to hide most of it? Well, it's because the man who wrote it describes the end of the world. In 1966, former McDonnell Douglas engineer Dr. Chan Thomas released a book called The Adam and Eve Story. That title might sound like he's being cute, but he's actually being literal. This book is about the end of the world as we know it, and not due to something we've all thought about like nuclear war, a meteor strike, or a zombie apocalypse. Thomas thinks our planet shakes us off like fleas on a dog, completely rearranging its surface, suddenly and without much warning. Now, if this terrifies you, you're not alone. If the surface of the Earth completely rearranged itself, most of us would be gone, and any of us who survive would face challenges humans haven't seen since the last Ice Age. Now, I know there's some doomsday preppers out there that already have a plan for this type of thing, and for the sake of humanity, I hope you're among the survivors. But for many people without modern conveniences, they'll have a very difficult task ahead of them and may die from despair alone. Forget about having supply chains. The survivors will be lucky if they can find any other humans, let alone enough humans to rebuild society. And for those of us reliant on modern technology, we're gonna struggle with even the most basic task. Just think of how many times you use the internet to look up something or learn something new. Few of us print out hard copies of our internet searches, and I'm definitely not gonna print out my search history, but that would be what it takes to reference even basic information like a guacamole recipe, let alone information on how to find food in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Yes, some physical records like books may survive, but they can be burned or get wet and rot. If all information is lost, your ability to tap into the collective knowledge of humanity goes away forever. But that's only if the catastrophe Chan Thomas predicts ever occurs. So why did he think global catastrophe was imminent? Well, because according to him, this has all happened before, many times before. In his book, Thomas presents evidence of a coming shift in the Earth's poles that creates a great cataclysm. And Thomas says these pole shifts are cyclical, that on regular intervals, a disaster wipes out almost all human life and we start over again from square one. He says we're actually the sixth advanced civilization to evolve on Earth. There may have even been more civilizations that have been here, but the further back you go, the harder it is to know for sure, because some of these civilizations occupied continents that no longer exist. Thomas isn't the first scientist to publish this theory. In 1958, almost 10 years before the Adam and Eve story, Charles Hapgood published The Earth's Shifting Crust, which discussed the Earth crustal displacement hypothesis. This theory says that sometimes the Earth spins really fast and the continents are rearranged. 
And when Hapgood proposed the idea of continental drift, it was called pseudoscience. But Hapgood had his supporters. In fact, Albert Einstein wrote the forewords for two of his books. Now, of course, we know now that Hapgood was right. The continents do move. They drift apart and collide together over and over again, and have done so for almost 4 billion years. Pangaea was the supercontinent that broke apart to form the land masses that exist today. But before Pangaea, there was the supercontinent Gondwana, which existed for 400 million years. But before Gondwana, there was Panosia. Before that, Rodinia, Columbia, Atlantica, Arctica, Kennerland, Ura, and Valbara. These were all supercontinents that eventually broke apart, then reformed. After working with Einstein and a few other scientists, Charles Hapgood released the book The Path of the Pole as an update to his previous theories. Specifically, Einstein convinced Hapgood that in addition to the weight of the ice caps, other factors driving continental drift had to be considered. This led Hapgood to update his theory in his follow-up work. Also, in Hapgood's book, he suggested that the Earth's poles are constantly moving. Again, this piece of pseudoscience was eventually proven true. Hapgood believed that a pole shift between 15 and 40 degrees occurred around 9600 BC, or 11,600 years ago, or what's commonly known as the Younger Dryas. The Younger Dryas near-glacial period lasted for about 1300 years and abruptly ended due to mass flooding from melting glaciers. In fact, many think the flooding that occurred during this time influenced global flood myths from around the world. Now, could a pole shift cause this? If the crust and pole shifted by 15 to 40 degrees, the answer is a pole shift could definitely cause this. And Hapgood brings some receipts to prove rapid ice melts have happened within recorded history. The Piri Reese map is something that's baffled scientists for hundreds of years. The map was created by Ottoman admiral and cartographer Piri Reese in 1513, and includes the last copy of a map originally created by Christopher Columbus. In this map, the New World is shown, including the Caribbean islands and South America. Impressively, this map shows geological features European explorers had no way of knowing at the time, like the Andes Mountains. Also included on the Piri Reese map is the continent of Antarctica, but Antarctica wasn't discovered until 1820, and Piri Reese claims the information on his map came from much older maps. The ancient documents that Reese used date all the way back to the time of Alexander the Great, or around 336 BC. So when Piri Reese was drawing his map, these others were already over 1800 years old. And perhaps the maps they were based on were even older than that. If Charles Hapgood was right, and the Earth's axis was shifted 15 degrees from where it is now, Antarctica wouldn't be completely covered in ice. Which is interesting because on the Piri Reese map, Antarctica is shown as having vegetation and animal life, and a coastline of land, not ice. Hapgood believed an Ice Age civilization long forgotten mapped Antarctica's coast thousands of years ago, and the Piri Reese map happened to be based on one of these ancient but accurate works. Though many of Hapgood's theories have proven to be true, the Ice Age pole shift is still controversial. We know the poles do shift over time, we also know the continents drift over a very long period of time. But Dr. Chan Thomas, in his book, The Adam and Eve Story, says this shift happened in less than a day. Chan Thomas describes in detail what this would be like, and it's worse than any Hollywood disaster movie ever conceived. Far worse. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. 
No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Chan Thomas begins his book with a chapter that describes exactly what we'll experience during this pole shift event. Now, before we get into it, now might be a good time to hit pause and grab fresh underwear. With a rumble so low as to be inaudible, then fuming into a thundering roar, the earthquake starts, only it's not like any earthquake in history. In California, mountains shake like ferns in a breeze. The mighty Pacific rears back and piles up into a mountain of seawater more than two miles high, then starts its race eastward. The wind attacks, shredding everything in supersonic bombardment. The mountain of Pacific seawater follows the wind eastward burying Los Angeles and San Francisco as if they were but grains of sand. Across the continent, the thousand-mile-per-hour wind wreaks unholy vengeance everywhere, mercilessly. Here's why there's such violent wind. The Earth spins at about a thousand miles per hour. We don't feel this because everything is spinning together. The land, the water, the atmosphere. Thomas says that when the pole shift happens, the Earth's air and water continue to spin, but the land masses stop. In many places, the Earth's molten sublayer breaks through and spreads a sea of white, hot liquid fire. In a fraction of a day, all vestiges of civilization are gone. The great cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Dallas, New York, Boston, are nothing but legends. Barely a stone is left, where millions walked just a few hours before. Now think of what would happen if you were in a car going a thousand miles per hour that suddenly stopped. Now think of what would happen if a large city going a thousand miles per hour suddenly stopped. Skyscrapers would collapse. Millions of people would be thrown around like they were in a food processor. Very few people would survive that. But the survivors are not the lucky ones because moving across the country at the speed of sound is a two mile high wall of water, mud and debris. South America finds the Andes not high enough to stop the violence. In less than a day, the entire continent is burned by molten earth fire, buried under miles of violent seas, then turned into a frozen hell. Everything freezes, man, beast, plant, and mud, in less than four hours. When the shift happens, the land on earth stops moving, so the sun stops moving in the sky. That means one side of the earth is gonna get really hot, and the other side really cold. A temperature drop of 180 degrees. That means even the warmest parts of the planet are going to be 80 degrees below zero. Everything is frozen solid within four hours. Europe cannot escape. The Alps, Pyrenees, Urals are shaken, then heaved even higher when the wall of seawater strikes. Western Africa and the sands of the Sahara vanish. The fury marches on for six days. During the sixth day, the oceans start to settle. The Bay of Bengal Basin, just east of India, is now at the North Pole. The Pacific Ocean, just west of Peru, is at the South Pole. 
New ice caps begin to form in the new polar areas, Greenland and Antarctica, now rotating equatorially, emerge with verdant tropical foliage. Thomas is predicting a 90 degree shift of the Earth's axis, basically turning the planet on its side. The poles move to the equator and the equator moves to the poles. New York lies at the bottom of the Atlantic covered by unbelievable amounts of mud. Of San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Dallas, and Boston, not a trace is left. The cataclysm has done its work and drives the pitiful few who survive into a new stone age. We join Noah, Adam, and Eve, Atlantis, Mu, and Olympus, and Jesus joins Osiris, Ta'aroa, Zeus, and Vishnu. In the first chapter of his book, Dr. Thomas paints a terrifying future, but how likely is it? In the next few chapters, Thomas goes on to not only prove that this pole shift is possible, but that it's happened before and will happen again very soon. Thomas claims that once every few thousand years, atomic explosions occur within the Earth's molten outer core, causing the electromagnetic structure of the world to become disrupted. According to the book, these nuclear blasts happen because interactions between the inner core and outer core lead to the sudden release of neutrons, or what Thomas called neutral matter, which then cause chain reactions in and around the Earth's core as they decay. These explosions release tremendous amounts of energy and affect everything from the rotation of the inner core to the motion of the outer crust. According to Thomas, the worst consequence of this is that the forces driving continental drift go haywire and then wreak havoc by causing sudden and dramatic changes in rotation on the surface of the Earth. Now, we're long overdue for what Thomas ominously calls a tumble, but most of his findings were based on historic records, not present observations. Now, for Dr. Thomas, the present would have been 1966, and it's been almost 60 years since the Adam and Eve story was published. So we have to ask, are there any new findings that support his theory? Well, unfortunately for all of us, there are signs the cataclysm may have already begun, including recent changes to the core of the Earth. So if any of us do want to survive the coming catastrophe, what should we do? Well, according to Thomas, we might want to brush up on our mythology because many of our legends, as it turns out, they aren't just stories. They're step-by-step instructions on how to survive. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Every culture has a flood myth. Abrahamic religions have Noah's flood. The Mayans have the Huracan flood, where the word hurricane comes from. Ancient Hawaiians have the Nu'u flood. The Sumerians wrote about a flood in Gilgamesh. Europe, Asia, Pacific Islanders, and native tribes from all over America. They all talk about a great flood that cleansed the earth so civilization could start again. One myth is just folklore. Two myths are a coincidence. 40 flood myths? That starts to look like less myth and more like actual history. Here in the Y-Files, we typically associate great floods with the end of the last ice age, the Younger Dryas. And core samples provide solid evidence that this happened. But what's interesting is, Thomas said the last great flood was 6,500 years ago. In the 1960s, there was very little, if any, proof of this. 
But a few years ago, archaeologists found evidence of the Gunyu flood myth in China. Evidence of a great flood has also been found in the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Archaeologists have discovered once thriving ancient settlements at the bottom of the Black Sea, and those communities range from 5,000 to 300,000 years old. That's the beginning of our species. About 7,000 years ago, this area was abandoned in a hurry. These discoveries place a major flood between 6,500 and 7,000 years ago, more recent than the Younger Dryas, and right when Thomas said it happened. Chan Thomas provides dates of other floods, the Younger Dryas about 11,500 years ago, before that a flood 18,500 years ago. This coincides with exactly the time when the Bering Land Bridge went underwater. Before that, 29,000 years ago, which was at the end of the Wisconsin Glacial Period, and before that, 43,800 years ago. Global floods aren't controversial, we know they happened. What is controversial is the claim that advanced civilizations existed before each of the floods. Chan Thomas believed that there were many ancient civilizations, both recorded and unrecorded, that have existed before ours. He also believed that many myths and legends were based on stories told by the survivors of each cataclysm. The Indian god Vishnu was a survivor of a cataclysm that happened 70,000 years ago. He started the Hindu religion to tell the tale of his fallen civilization. According to Thomas, many other gods from Zeus in Greece to Osiris in Egypt were just human survivors of great cataclysms, canonized for surviving hell on earth. Mainstream archaeology and paleontology say that the first civilization emerged in Mesopotamia 6,500 years ago. But what if that was just the last reboot? When we look at the erosion around the base of the Great Sphinx, we see patterns that were formed by running water, vast amounts of water, moving at tremendous speeds. But if this is water erosion, that means the Sphinx was created before the last flood 6,500 years ago, which is before the emergence of the Egyptian civilization. Boy, archaeologists hate that idea. And they really hate the idea that the Sphinx was built over 10,000 years ago. But there's other evidence of a cataclysmic pole shift, specifically of a great mud flood and the demise of the most famous lost civilization of them all, Atlantis. Chan Thomas makes some pretty extreme claims about the demise of ancient cultures in the Adam and Eve story. He claims that many lost civilizations, including Atlantis, were not only real, but continued to send messages to us across the generations, warning us of a coming catastrophe. Extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. So aside from Chan Thomas's book, what do we have? Well, in his dialogues, Plato famously introduced the world to Atlantis, the advanced utopian society that was destroyed in a cataclysm. But afterwards, there occurred violent earthquakes and floods. And in a single day and night of misfortune, all your warlike men in a body sank into the earth. And the island of Atlantis in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea. For which reason, the sea in those parts is impassable and impenetrable because there is a shoal of mud in the way. And this was caused by the subsidence of the island. Mainstream historians consider this to be nothing more than a morality tale, a warning against hubris. But Plato claimed that he heard the story from his grandfather, who had heard it from the Greek statesman Solon. Solon had visited Egypt and was told the legend of Atlantis by a priest named Sanchez of Saïs. According to the priest, Atlantis fell 9,000 years before the time of Solon's visit, or roughly 9600 BC. 
This puts us, once again, right at the end of the Younger Dryas, which, as you'll remember, ended abruptly with a lot of water. Water that could have come from ice caps melting as they moved closer to the equator during the last big shift. All of these seem like odd coincidences for just a morality tale, but something you've heard me say a lot, there's no such thing as a coincidence. So what's going on here? According to Chan Thomas, Atlantis's fall didn't happen because of hubris. It had nothing to do with its people at all. The Earth's crust took a tumble and then submerged the nation under an ocean of mud. But some writings survived this apocalypse. And in his book, Dr. Thomas says that he learned about the true meaning of different myths and legends through interpreting what he calls the Naga runes or the Nakal language. Nakal is a dead language Thomas thought to be even more ancient than the Atlanteans themselves. Tablets bearing legends written in this language were supposedly handed down from Atlanteans to ancient Egyptian scholars and eventually made their way to India. These tablets would eventually be studied by British writer James Churchward under the guidance of an Indian priest called the Rishi and were kept by an organization known as the Nakal Brotherhood. Churchward was taught the basics of this language and would write several books about myths contained on the tablets in the late 1800s. According to Churchward, the glyphs from the tablets were the basis for almost every language in the world, from Indian Sanskrit to Mayan hieroglyphics. This language once linked the entire world together, but then something happened, and every language around the world took its own unique path. It's possible these separate paths were the result of people being dispersed around the world due to a global catastrophe. Churchward's notion of a common worldwide language might have seemed unlikely even to his contemporaries, but in the modern era, we might see how a common language could develop for an advanced civilization. English has essentially become the lingua franca or shared language of communication for many in the world today. This isn't saying that English is somehow superior to other modern languages, but it does prove that when a civilization becomes advanced and reaches all corners of the globe, people tend to pick a common means of communication. Churchward thought Nakal was this common language of a lost global civilization, with Atlantis at the center. Unfortunately, Churchward was not allowed to take any of the tablets from India and never provided direct evidence of their existence. This means Churchward may have forever missed his opportunity to prove that Atlantis and other lost civilizations were real. Until definitive proof of Atlantis is found, it'll continue to be considered a mythical land. But that won't and shouldn't stop people from looking for it. There is a geological feature in Northwest Africa called the Rishat structure, also called the Eye of the Sahara. It's about the right size and shape for Atlantis. Plato described the port city as having concentric rings with a waterway between each ring. The ridged ring-like shape of the Rishat structure could have been the remnants of Atlantis's port, but the Rishat structure is inland. So for this to have been a seaport, it would have been a time when there was a lot more water in the earth. Or, as the Adam and Eve story describes, the sudden movement of the crust made the entire city of Atlantis move eastward to northern Africa. Even among Atlantis believers, there's debate about whether the Rishat structure is natural or man-made. But what I find fascinating is near the eye of the Sahara and all over the planet, you'll see large ripples in the landscape. On the ground, these look like rolling hills, but they're actually about 50 feet high, the size of a five-story building and they were caused by water, a lot of water. But even there, you gotta picture the tsunamis that we've experienced in the last decade and a half in, you know, in, in Indonesia and Japan. When they made landfall, those tsunamis were roughly between 20 and 50 feet. Here, what you have to visualize 
is a tsunami sweeping over the land that's over a thousand feet deep. It's filling this basin, it's rushing in in a great tsunami from the north of freshwater, meltwater coming off the ice sheet. And it's sweeping down over this land at probably two or 300 million cubic feet per second, which is an inconceivable amount of water. It's, it's many times in excess of every river flowing on earth flowing today all at once. It's, it's beyond that many times. But Atlantis isn't the only place lost to this disaster. The Nikal tablets that Thomas studied for his book, they were passed down to the Atlanteans from someone. So who? What advanced civilization was here before Atlantis? According to both Church Ward and Thomas, the Nikal language was named after the Mayan word for the exalted or enlightened traveling missionaries. This group journeyed from their motherland across the Americas onto the Atlantean continent and then escaped to Egypt before Atlantis was consumed by the flood. According to the Adam and Eve story, the Nikal language is the remnant of an empire even more advanced and vast than Atlantis. This empire was on the other side of the world waiting to be discovered. Or maybe it's already been found. On the other side of the world in the Pacific Ocean, we have another lost continent. This is called the Land of Mew, and according to James Churchward, this was the home of the Nikal people who created the tablets he studied while visiting India. Chan Thomas had studied Churchward's illustrations of the Nikal tablets. He then used those illustrations to reinterpret various legends, legends that could only be seen directly through Nikal symbology. His main goal was to ensure the full legend was told without any loss of original information. Thomas thought this information loss happened because old myths were translated to English through multiple intermediate languages like Hebrew and Greek. Thomas did his best to directly translate and identify key symbols in various myths. He would then reveal the true message of the Nikal people in the Adam and Eve story. Now, unfortunately, according to Thomas, these myths are both stories of our origin and warnings of our demise. For example, Thomas used Nikal symbology to illustrate that the fiery sword said to guard the gates of Eden in the book of Genesis was a symbolic reference to the fiery swath of destruction that severed humanity's link to their homelands during a cataclysm. Thomas provides other examples of the symbols used in different creation myths that all say very similar things. Civilization doesn't last forever, and eventually we have to reboot. Based on information contained in the Nikal tablets, Chan Thomas and James Churchward estimated that the Nikal and their continent of Mu were possibly older than Atlantis itself. In fact, both Thomas and Churchward thought Mu could be inspiration for the Garden of Eden itself. Both Mu and Atlantis would share the same fiery fate and be swept from the face of the earth. But Chan Thomas and James Churchward were not the only ones to describe Mu. In the mid-1800s, archaeologist Augustus Le Plongeon described this continent in his academic publications. But for him, Mew was synonymous with Atlantis and was a lost continent that sank into the Atlantic Ocean, not the Pacific. While Thomas, Churchward, and Le Plongeon disagree on the location of Mew, they all agree that Mew sank into the ocean. And this happened suddenly and violently around the time of the Younger Dryas. But there were a few survivors, and they passed on legends from their former homeland. The Nikal tablets that Thomas and Churchward based their Mew theories on were found in India, but Le Plongeon was working in South America. These two places are really far apart. And as far as we know, the cultures there didn't have any direct contact until much more recently. So why do these two theories sound so familiar? 
Both versions of the Mew legend seem to be influenced by the same source material. The suspected location of Mew is the only variation. We know Churchward claims that he got his information from the ancient Nikal tablets in India, but what about Le Plajan? What specifically about those Mayan murals led him to his conclusions? When he wasn't studying archaeology, Le Plajan was a man of adventure. He sailed the Pacific, taught classes at a university, and worked as a surveyor during the California Gold Rush. He was kind of like a 19th century Indiana Jones. He also helped pioneer the use of photography in archaeology and spent a lot of time in the Yucatan Peninsula studying ancient Mayan ruins and their hieroglyphics. In his work on the Mayan hieroglyphics, Le Plajan noticed symbols that were very familiar to him because many Mayan symbols are almost identical to those used in the ancient rites of Freemasonry. August Le Plajan would know this, he was a Freemason himself. Like Churchward and Thomas, Le Plongeon suspected that ancient languages from across the world may have had a common root, and the similarities he saw between Mayan and Freemasonry were due to a shared distant ancestry between cultures. Le Plongeon explained the similarities between ancient symbols and myths across the globe. He theorized that after the fall of Atlantis, or what he called Mew, some people escaped. Those survivors traveled both east and west of the doomed continent. Le Plongeon placed the date of this catastrophe at about 11,600 years ago, bringing us back like a broken record again to the Younger Dryas. The survivors of Atlantis spread in all directions, passing on what knowledge they could of their lost homeland to people they encountered. Those traveling east from Atlantis included a queen named Mu. She was a foreign ruler whose husband, Prince Ko, was murdered. She was attempting to seek refuge in Atlantis, but Atlantis was already gone. So Queen Mu took refuge in Egypt instead, and there she helped start a new civilization. Augustus Le Plongeon and his wife interpreted the tale of Queen Mu from murals in Mayan ruins, specifically the ruins of Chichen Itza. They claim the murals depict Queen Mu's life and Prince Ko's eventual slaying at the hands of his own brother. Le Plongeon thought the Maya knew about Prince Ko's murder, since the story was known on Atlantis before it sank into the ocean, and that tale was passed down in that culture as well as Egypt's. Le Plongeon noticed similarities between symbols used for Queen Mu and the Egyptian goddess Isis. For example, Queen Mu and Isis are both depicted as winged female figures, and their husbands were both killed by their brothers in acts of jealousy. Prince Ko is often represented by a great cat, which, given other links to ancient Egypt, led Le Plongeon to believe the Great Sphinx was built by Queen Mu as a memorial for her slain husband. Since this would mean the Sphinx was constructed around 9600 BC, this would explain the advanced age of the Sphinx and the water erosion patterns around its base. The presence of Atlantean survivors in Egypt also explains why the Nikal tablets were there before being moved to India, where James Churchward would later read them. Chan Thomas points to the land of Mu's destruction to support his theory on catastrophic crustal shifts. He lists many cultures that have been influenced by the catastrophe. Mu was just another civilization destroyed by the tumble that also sank Atlantis. So what about the Atlantean survivors that fled west after the continent fell? Many believe that they either settled with or started various South American tribes, including the ancient cultures of the Maya and the Aztec. The survivors of the Atlantean Cataclysm carried with them their myths and history, which inspired the murals Le Plongeon documented and interpreted. 
But according to James Churchward, who read directly from the Nakal tablets, the real land of Mew was not only different from Atlantis, it was much bigger. And Mew was a much more advanced society than Atlantis. The legend Churchward found says that Mew's empire was once so large, it reached Hawaii in the north, as far south as Easter Island, and so far west that it almost reached the islands of Japan. The Yanaguni Monument off the coast of Japan is said to be the underwater ruins of Mew. For those unfamiliar, this peculiar structure is a set of underwater megaliths that resemble large man-made blocks. Mainstream archaeology says the Yanaguni Monument is natural sandstone, but others claim that surrounding the structure is evidence of ancient temples, courtyards, and even a pyramid. Unfortunately, the ocean's current is very strong in this area, so excavation and exploration are almost impossible. Some even claim these strong currents are the advanced technology of Mew protecting forbidden knowledge in the deep. Even if the area could be explored, any evidence of civilization would have been swept away and lost to the depths thousands of years ago, so there's been no direct evidence of any human activity there, at least not yet. If the monument is ever proven to be man-made, this would be convincing evidence that the land of Mew might be more than just a legend. Namadal in Micronesia is considered to be near the southern part of Mew. The site is full of structures made of enormous logs of volcanic rock. Nobody knows who built this or how, but their society was advanced. Just recently, LiDAR imaging from the air shows that at one time, Nam Madal had artificial irrigation that could bring fresh water to residents all over the area. Local legend says that the volcanic rock used to build Nam Madal was created by twin sorcerers. Their names were Alasipa and Alasopa. They arrived from a mythical land to, quote, build an altar to the god of agriculture. If we interpret this legend like Chan Thomas might, this is the tale of two brothers who were originally from the land of Mew. The two brothers survived the cataclysm and were trying to grow food after finding refuge among local tribes that were once colonies of Mew. Given the mysterious construction techniques used in Namadal, it's possible the brothers used advanced knowledge from the old lost continent to create for themselves a new home. The eastern part of Mew is Easter Island. There could be evidence of a cataclysm there. On Easter Island are the Moai statues, and you've seen these. They're heads, lots of heads, about a thousand actually. Most people don't realize that these statues have bodies buried deep underground. So there are two options. One, whoever built the statues first dug holes, buried the 30-foot tall, 80-ton statues up to their necks, and then filled in the holes. Or two, the statues were completely above ground, but at some point were buried by something. And look at Easter Island on a map. It's a tiny island in the middle of nowhere. At one point, 12,000 people lived there. Where did they come from? Well, mainstream anthropology says they took a canoe out thousands of miles in the middle of the Pacific and hoped for the best. But if the continent of Mew was real, then they could have just walked there. This could also explain why Polynesian languages share similarities to Greek. And maybe why on Easter Island, they worshiped a sun god called Ra'a, which is awfully close to the Egyptian sun god, Ra. And the connections don't stop there. There are similarities between Greek, Egyptian, and even Indian gods, as if all these cultures intermingled or came from a single source. Chan Thomas lays out some good evidence for the cyclical cataclysm theory. But the big questions are how and when will it happen? Well, you're not gonna like the answer. Dr. Chan Thomas lays out a compelling argument for a coming global cataclysm, 
But when? Well, to answer that, we have to understand how it happens. In the Adam and Eve story, Thomas includes a diagram showing the cross-section of the Earth and a description of the process. The process of a cataclysm is known. Look at the cross-section of the Earth inside the front cover. You'll see two molten layers. The important one is the thin molten layer starting 60 miles down. It extends 60 miles deeper to 120 miles below the surface of the Earth. The thick, deep molten layer starting 1800 miles down is at the bottom of the mantle. Extending 1300 miles deeper is the outer core. Seismology has proven these two layers to be molten and they are white hot, over 2500 degrees. Dr. Thomas was able to predict seismic activity all over the world. The inside the Earth, the electrical and magnetic structure of the interior makes these layers act as if they were near solid, as long as the magnetic and electrical structure of the Earth maintains its orderliness. It keeps rotating on axis in a normal manner. Every few thousand years, the magnetic and electrical orderliness in the shallow molten layer is disorganized to the extent that the shallow molten layer is allowed to act as a free liquid, which then serves as a lubricant for the ice caps to pull the shell around the Earth's interior so as to have the ice caps shift about 90 degrees into the torrid zone. Thomas thought the triggers for the cataclysm were neutron explosions occurring every few thousand years within the Earth's core. When this nuclear event occurs, the layer beneath the Earth's crust turns from solid to liquid. Then the land masses can slide around freely. The weight of the ice caps then yanks the Earth off axis. In one quarter to one half a day, the geographic poles move to the torrid zone, and all hell lets loose. The atmosphere and the Earth's oceans don't shift with the shell. They just keep on rotating west to east. At the equator, that speed is about 1,000 miles per hour. So, while the shell shifts with the poles going to the equator, the winds and oceans continue eastward, blowing and flooding across the Earth at supersonic speeds, inundating continents with water miles deep, destroying everything with which man ever dealt, including himself. Chan Thomas's most recent prediction on when this will happen came in 1993 when he said the shift would happen in seven years, around the year 2000. He mentioned that Nostradamus and Edgar Cayce made the same prediction. Both predicted that the year 2000 would bring the second coming, as predicted in the book of Revelation. Revelation is a complicated read, even for theologians, but the imagery in Revelation implies that the earth will eventually be consumed by fire. Chan Thomas just thought this would be the earth fire resulting from crustal upheaval. Now, whether you believe in clairvoyance or not, it seems odd that each of these people would predict global catastrophe around the same time. But the year 2000 has come and gone, and we are still here. So is Chan Thomas completely wrong, or are we just on borrowed time? Well, in 2023, scientists noticed something alarming when they looked at the seismic data from 2010 to 2020. The data revealed that the inner core of the Earth may have stopped spinning, or has even started spinning in the opposite direction. The rotation of the inner and outer core is critical on how the Earth's electromagnetic field is generated, and this observation seems to align with Thomas's predictions for the early stages of a cataclysm. The slowing and reversal of the inner core could indicate something happening inside the Earth, something causing a change in rotation. Is it the atomic explosions Chan Thomas warned us about back in 1966? Well, it's hard to tell. We would probably just feel these warning signs as earthquakes, which happen all the time. 
But something is happening, and Chan Thomas made his final prediction over 20 years ago, which means we're due. There's a lot more to the Adam and Eve story, but we covered the key points. So should we panic? Well, let's address a few items in the book and see how they compare with known science. But first, let's clear up a few things. I told the story based on what's in the book and in the articles and videos floating around the web. Those videos aren't completely accurate. First, you'll hear that Chan Thomas is a made-up name. Because his subject matter was so explosive, he wrote the book under a pseudonym. Well, that's not true. Dr. Chan Thomas was a real person. Chan is his nickname. His full name was Dr. Chauncey Powers Thomas. He was born in Missouri in 1920 and passed away in 1998. He was married and had children and grandchildren. He was an electrical engineer and he did work for McDonnell Douglas. In the 1990s, he even appeared as a UFO expert in a documentary. And Dr. Thomas wasn't shy. He was on the Johnny Carson show on April 7th, 1965 with Ava Gabor. Dr. Thomas wrote a few books, some about the coming cataclysm, ESP, UFOs, and one book on how to teach yourself natural childbirth. That last one, yeah, he seemed to be pretty comfortable dipping his toes into very different topics. Another thing you'll hear is that the book was originally 284 pages, but the CIA only released 57 of those pages. Well, the original book was 57 pages. If you look at the table of contents, the conclusion begins on page 45. And some people will say the CIA is withholding documents because pages are missing, like page 8, page 18, page 20, and a few others. Well, those pages are missing because they're the opposite sides of title pages. In the original book, they're blank. If you're still skeptical, take a look online. There are people with original copies from 1966. So that 57-page CIA document is the whole thing. So why classify it? Well, that is a bit of a mystery. What was classified was the book, an inter-office memo with a shopping list for some tools and car parts, and a folded-up article snipped from People magazine. Now, that's a strange assortment of items to classify. So if I had to guess, the book was in the possession of a caseworker, and it was classified as just a matter of course. This wasn't an effort to hide Chan Thomas's work. In 1966, the year the book was classified, Dr. Thomas was working at McDonnell Douglas, but he was working on UFO and anti-gravity technology. He also worked as a project engineer at Bell Labs on a missile guidance system. So I'm not surprised that he was on the CIA's radar. Chan Thomas was known to be highly intelligent, but very eccentric. The classified documents were probably part of a background report, or maybe someone was just keeping an eye on him. You'll also hear that the book was banned, but it wasn't. Just that one document, that one copy was classified. There were copies of this book in circulation. He also published follow-ups in 1971 and again in 1993. Neither were classified or banned. As for the content of the book itself, Thomas doesn't provide any solid evidence. He makes a lot of deductions from earlier texts, some of which are pretty big leaps. For example, the Nikal language that Thomas studied was researched by James Churchward. Churchward studied Nikal in the late 1800s, and this is when he published his theories about the lost continent of Mew. But Churchward makes a lot of dubious claims that cast doubt on Chan Thomas's work as well. For example, Churchward says he was taught the Nikal language from a priest in India, who was one of three people in the world that could speak the language. Now, I won't deny that extraordinary things can happen, but this seems like an unlikely story. The only evidence Churchward ever presented to prove the existence of the Nikal language are reproductions of the tablets, but he made these reproductions from memory. 
no one has ever found a trace of the Nikal Brotherhood, Church Ward's teacher, the Rishi, or any copies of the Nikal tablets in India. At least no copies that weren't proven to be fake and which didn't show up until after Church Ward released his book. So what about Le Plongeon and his theories on the existence of Mew? Although Le Plongeon was an archaeologist, in his time the field was still developing, and many of Le Plongeon's theories on Mew were not supported by accurate translations of Mayan legends. Le Plongeon did innovate with the use of photography in his work, but was known to alter his photographs to support his theories. He and his wife were also prone to exaggerating their work. They published a lot of unsupported and now debunked claims, specifically about the meaning behind the murals and hieroglyphics at Chichen Itza. We can still visit the places Le Plongeon studied and draw our own conclusions. Most experts don't see the tale of Queen Mu. They see depictions of ritual sacrifice we know occurred at these temples. Although Chan Thomas makes his own significant claims, he also borrowed a lot from both Church Ward and Le Plongeon to formulate his narrative about the fall of ancient cultures. Thomas relies primarily on the estimated dates of different legends to tie his entire theory together. Thomas justifies a lot of his work from the quote-unquote proof presented by Church Ward, but with both Church Ward and Le Plongeon being unreliable, a large chunk of Thomas's theory falls apart. As you read Chan Thomas's book, you find he's borrowing ideas from other catastrophists like Hapgood, Emanuel Velikovsky, and a few others. But Thomas cherry-picks his favorite parts without giving specifics. For example, his theory about the ice caps throwing off the Earth's axis comes from Hapgood's first book. But after working with scientists, including Albert Einstein, Hapgood issued a follow-up book that explains how he got that wrong. But Dr. Thomas, he sticks with the theory. Hapgood modified his work since the weight imbalance caused by the ice caps was never going to be enough to drive displacement in the crust. The forces are just too weak. But Hapgood's observations helped provide the foundation for the currently accepted theory on what drives continental drift, plate tectonics. The difference seems to be that where Hapgood was willing to modify his conclusions based on new evidence, Thomas seemed to want to modify the evidence to match his conclusions. This is typically a sign that someone is either a fanatic or trying to sell you something, sometimes both. And Thomas certainly seemed to like the limelight given his television appearances. So what about the liquid crust that Thomas talks about? He says the Earth's magnetism and electricity become disrupted, and this occurs due to the equivalent of many neutron bombs going off in the Earth's core. Okay, so what? There's plenty of evidence that nuclear fission and fusion occur often within the Earth. We know this since we can detect the byproducts of nuclear reactions originating within the Earth itself. In fact, these reactions contribute significantly to the total amount of thermal energy in the planet. These reactions occur normally, and there's no clear mechanism for how these reactions could cause problems on the scale that Chan Thomas describes. Isaac Newton said bodies in motion tend to stay in motion. So the energy required to suddenly stop and change the rotation direction of the Earth's outer crust is almost incomprehensible. Such a thing might only be possible if the Earth were to collide with another planet with a similar mass that was rotating in the opposite direction at just the right angle. But let's hold off on that theory for now. I don't want to spoil an upcoming episode. Rotational momentum is something that doesn't just disappear on a planetary level. But Thomas says this happens in just six hours. But without a major impact, this just couldn't happen. In his book, Thomas seems to think that talking about nuclear explosions is enough to convince people that it's a well-thought-out mechanism for the cataclysm. But it's really just a hand-waving explanation for something that's a lot more complicated, especially on a planetary scale. 
So what about the 2023 report that the Earth's core had stopped moving or had even reversed? Well, this is actually true. So are we in the early stages of an apocalypse? The honest answer is, we don't know. The observations from this study were based on seismic data, and that could be difficult to interpret. But the rotation of the Earth's core is something that can change over time. The scientists who conducted the study acknowledge their results are up for debate and more research is needed. And there are scientists who interpret the data to mean that the Earth's outer crust is now spinning in better sync with the inner core. What they're trying to do is feel the inner structure of the Earth by monitoring vibrations. So it's part art, part science to interpret some of these readings. But whether the Earth's core has changed its spin or not, scientists don't seem especially worried about any consequences like Thomas describes. Either way, a change in the rotation of the Earth's core is not expected to cause any major issues. So those are just some of the concept flaws. But there's also more direct evidence that can't be explained by Chan Thomas's theory. For example, there are ice core samples from the eastern part of Antarctica that show that it's been covered in ice for at least 1.5 million years. Now granted, the western side of Antarctica is a little trickier because it may not have always been covered in ice. But either way, we know for certain that it's been down at the bottom of the planet for a long time. When Chan Thomas released an expanded version of the book in 1993, he didn't make any corrections or provide any new evidence. But he did have chapters on ESP, UFOs, and angels. It doesn't read as scientific at all. In fact, the book is a hot mess. He jumps all over the place without a cohesive narrative. It feels like he gathered a bunch of ideas he had over the years and just threw them into one final book. In the last chapters of the book, Chan Thomas rewrites the biblical Adam and Eve story from scratch using his knowledge of the Nikal tablets or what he calls the Naga runes. From what we know, it appears as though Thomas wrote his book based on, at best, Church Ward's vague recollections of an unproven language. Or at worst, a language and myth that was completely faked by James Church Ward for profit. Thomas also makes claims about Jesus living in India before his crucifixion, among many other facts for which he gives very little evidence. So there's two questions. First, was Dr. Chan Thomas a serious researcher? No. As we said before, trying to fit or manipulate evidence to match your desired outcome is never good. It doesn't matter if you're a mainstream scientist or a researcher specializing in the fringe. Integrity matters if you're gonna convince people of your position. Although he discredits himself with some of his more outlandish claims, Dr. Thomas was an engineer and worked for some very serious companies on some very serious projects. But there is a second question. Is there evidence to support some of Thomas's more catastrophic claims? Well, there is. No, I don't believe Dr. Chauncey Powers Thomas was a serious researcher. Whether he really had ESP or not, I'd rather not get into it. But some of the claims he makes in his book have been proven possible. We know that global floods have happened. The evidence is everywhere. But these floods, specifically from the Younger Dryas, were not from the oceans. They were from the rapid melting of freshwater glaciers. Still, they were destructive. They really did create tsunamis a thousand feet high, and they really raised the sea level hundreds of feet. Thomas says the temperature drops so much and so quickly that everything is instantly frozen solid. He talks about woolly mammoths being frozen with buttercups in their mouths. Well, this is true. Mammoths have been discovered that were frozen in the middle of eating. And it takes a long time to freeze a steak, but to flash freeze a mammoth, those conditions would have to be extreme. According to Thomas, seismic activity is one of the reasons the Earth's axis shifts. This is also true. 
NASA found that the big Indonesian earthquake in 2004 shifted the North Pole about 25 centimeters east, and the Earth's rotation sped up, which decreased the length of a day by 2.7 microseconds. In 2010, an earthquake in Chile did the same thing. The Earth's axis shifted, and the day was shortened again. In Japan the following year, it happened again. If you're worried about earthquakes speeding up the Earth's rotation, don't nail down your furniture. We're fine. Earthquakes speed up the Earth's rotation, but the moon slows it down. Things stay pretty well balanced. The shifts aren't anything to worry about. Now, the shifting of the magnetic poles, that is a concern. We know the Earth's poles flip-flop. North becomes south and vice versa. And geologically speaking, it happens a lot. It's happened hundreds of times. On average, the time between shifts is about 300,000 years. But we haven't shifted in almost 800,000 years. So we're way overdue. We know the magnetic poles have flipped because when lava cools, it creates a record of the orientation of past magnetic fields, like a tape recorder records sound. The poles are always moving. In the early 1990s, the North Pole was drifting about nine miles per hour, but that's been steadily increasing. In fact, GPS is updated periodically to account for this, but GPS was being updated every five years, then every year, and now every six months. The pole is now drifting at almost 40 miles per year, and the Earth's magnetic field is weakening quickly. These are signs that a magnetic pole shift could be coming. So what then? Is that the end of the world? Well, life will go on. Animals that navigate using geomagnetism will be confused, but in a generation or two, they'll figure it out. Animals that don't use magnetism probably won't notice a difference. The geologic record shows no major die-offs during pole shifts and our species has lived through a few shifts in the past three million years, and we're still here. But our ancestors didn't have satellites or GPS or planes. A lot of our technology is gonna go haywire, but code can be rewritten and software can be patched. The real danger is in between the shifts. As we approach a pole shift, the Earth's magnetic field gets tangled up and extremely weakened. This leaves us vulnerable to solar activity. Solar winds, storms, coronal mass ejections, these are bad. Without our magnetic field to protect us, satellites will get fried if they're not hardened. Rates of cancer will increase dramatically. And if you think climate change is a problem now, you haven't seen anything yet. But the biggest danger is our power grids. High enough solar activity could knock out all electricity on Earth for days or weeks, maybe months in some places. To say there will be civil unrest is a huge understatement. When Dr. Chan Thomas released his book, The Adam and Eve Story, it was dismissed as pseudoscience. But in the 50 or so years since it was published, a lot of his claims can be proven. It would seem that, in some cases, the difference between pseudoscience and real science is just time. And if a fraction of Dr. Thomas's predictions come true, our time is running out. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. My name is AJ, and this has been The Y Files. If you had fun or learned anything, do me a favor, leave a nice review. Positive feedback helps keep the content coming. And like most topics we cover on The Y Files, today's topic was recommended by you. So if there's a story you'd like to learn more about, go to thewifiles.com slash tips. And special thanks to our patrons who make The Y Files possible. I dedicate every episode to you. And if you'd like to support The Y Files, consider becoming a member on Patreon. For as little as three bucks a month, you help keep things moving. Plus you get all kinds of perks. You get access to audio and video episodes early without commercials. You get access to the video version of this podcast, early access to special products like the Hecklefish Talking Plushie, and you get two private live streams every week just for you. 
Another great way to support is grab something from the Wi-Fi store. We got t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, and all kinds of fun stuff up there. So that's shop.thewifiles.com. Again, thanks so much for spending time with me today. Until next time, be safe, be kind, and know that you are appreciated.